Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, founder and president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm delighted and honored to welcome each of you to today's teleconference. I have with me as panelists, Korzad Mehta, very seasoned and experienced, brilliant lawyer at the Murthy Law Firm. And joining Korzad is Jim McLaughlin, another brilliant legal member of the Murthy Law Firm team. Uh, the topic for today is overcoming issues dealing with PWDs or prevailing wage determinations. Uh, the reason we're focusing on PWDs or prevailing wage determinations is it is actually a very important part of the PERM labor certification green card process. As most of you know, the PERM is the first stage of the green card process in an employer-sponsored case where the employer has to test the labor market with the U.S. Department of Labor. And the U.S. Department of Labor requires that an employer obtain the prevailing wage for any position, and if the employer's salary does not either meet or exceed the U.S. Department of Labor's prevailing wage for that sponsored job or position, as determined by Department of Labor, then it's going to be a big problem to continue with the green card process for you all as employers. So today, the uh, Murthy Law Firm attorneys will discuss with you the fundamentals of the prevailing wage process, how it works, and issues that we've seen that can act as roadblocks or problems, and how you as employers can try to work around some of those problems when seeking the prevailing wage determination for the green card process. So as we said, it's the it is very, very important because you cannot file the perm unless you obtain the PWD from the Department of Labor. It's absolutely critical, it's important, and we or any law firm that you deal with, your lawyers should advise you and obtain that information from the U.S. Department of Labor. Um, and there's different ways that you can do that. There's the Department of Labor database, the OES, there's collective bargaining agreements, if there's a union kind of a job, or AWS or alternate wage survey. And my two brilliant colleagues, Korzad and Jim, are gonna discuss some of that. So let's go over quickly the brief overview of what, what's what's required with respect to the prevailing wage. What's the form number and how does it work? Sure. So Sheila, like you said, the uh, prevailing wage request, which is f filed electronically on uh, ETA form 9141, and it goes to it goes for adjudication to the National Processing Center of the Department of Labor, which is currently located in Washington D.C., uh, is a very very important part of this first step of the green card process, which is the labor certification process or PERM. Um, it's very very important for a number of different reasons, primarily because, as you said, the prevailing wage request is what the Department of Labor adjudicates to determine what the prevailing wage for the offered position, the proffered position that's the subject of the labor certification is going to be. In addition, it's the first kind of threshold document that is 
submitted to the Department of Labor that sets forth the job description, the job title, and the minimum requirements of the position. So effectively, it's a foundational keystone of everything mm-hmm. uh, in the labor certification process that builds from there. It also can function as kind of a tool for an employer and their attorney to shape how the course of the labor certification is going to go. Uh, We're going to be talking about this more as we proceed. However, as I said, this document, this ETA 9141 that we submit to the U.S. Department of Labor has the job description, has the minimum requirements. And oftentimes when we approach a labor certification, we kind of have an idea as to what we would like the government to do for us so that we can proceed with respect to what job classification. We'll talk about what that is later. Or, uh, you know, what job level we would like the position to come at. And the foundational work that goes into submitting the ETA 9141 can help us effectively advocate prior to other steps in the green card process for a certain result from the Department Ah, of Labor. Okay, so does that mean that the two forms then, the ETA 9089, which is the PERM form, should be similar or mirror or match the 9141? Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You want to kind of look at the 9089 and the 9141 kind of like uh, matching or uh, or, uh, complementary pieces of clothing if you're Mm -hmm. a fashionista. Um, you know, it's it's important that they be matching one another and mirroring mm-hmm. one Jim? another. Yeah, absolutely. They have to mirror each other. But one of the things that we see in practice, of course, uh, Sheila, on your consults and, of course, all the other cases you work on is a lot of employers come to us and they know they want to hire somebody and the person's doing something in particular, but they often come to us for very sort of a broad job description and often very broad requirements. They're like, well, you know, this person is is good at this and so I have them focusing on this and they're extraordinary. I want to keep them on. Um, But the problem with the perm process and with this being the first step is what a lot of the back and forth will happen is narrowing down really what is the job. And then furthermore, which can be frustrating at times um, for people going through this for the first time, is uh, narrowing down what actually truly is the minimum requirement. Because it's that minimum requirement in the perm process you have to use that has to be listed on this labor certification. That's a good point because people often say, well, I speak a foreign language or I do this or I do that. And as most of you know, you can't add those little frills that are kind of nice to have but not absolutely minimal minimum requirements as per the Department of Labor regulations that will actually create major complications and problems in getting the perm actually approved down the road. Fantastic. Okay. So we figured out now what the basis or the, that it's such an important foundational piece in preparing the Form 9141 for the PWD. So what are the factors that an employer needs to look at when submitting this or the Department of Labor will look at as factors for determining the prevailing wage. Okay, so one of the things that uh, you know we were talking about narrowing down what the the job is. One of the things that cannot we can often use is uh, what's considered the ONET. Basically, lists all of the occupations that the Department of Labor has ever considered as potential jobs out there. Um, with that ONET uh, on the ONET, you'll see a job description, and what you'll have is the occupation code. And the occupation code is what's going to establish the what the Department of Labor says is the range of wages for that prevailing wage determination. Um, 
with when we file the prevailing wage determination, we actually list on there to the Department of Labor what we believe is the mo- most appropriate job category or job code. Unfortunately, it's only a d- discretionary recommendation. The Department of Labor is going to look at the job description and they're going to determine themselves what actually is the most accurate code that will then give you what the range of wages is. One of the things that we find in practice is the despite we can recommend, sometimes we also want to advocate. So in the job description section, we're not only going to list the job description, and if you have uh, various minimum requirements, list them on the job description as well, uh, because the form itself is is very limited. Uh, But in addition, we want to make an argument as to why the job code may be more appropriate than something else. Sometimes it's a no-brainer. You know, computer systems analyst, um, you know, uh, software developer applications based upon the job description. That's not a problem. But a lot of times you may have a job that is, say, a lead position. But the Department of Labor, when they look at that, they may say, oh, lead, managerial, supervise. That's going to give you a whole new wage range that most likely for your position is well out of reality. And so what you may what you'll have to do is in that job description, explain that it's a project lead. It's not managerial. It's not managerial. It's not supervising. Uh, more often, sometimes you'll get a job code that is in the other category. The Department of Labor generally is reluctant to give the other category. As if you look at the ONET, you'll see the others listed. Um, but sometimes it's the most accurate, and you may have to make an argument as to why it's the most accurate. I think it's important, uh, and Jim's absolutely right, that employers and their counsel don't feel constrained by what the form is asking for in those little boxes. Yes, of course you want to be responsive to those boxes and to those uh, form requirements. However, there is the flexibility and in fact, in multiple liaisons between the Department of Labor and stakeholders, they have advocated and even requested that, hey, if you guys have additional information or if you have another way that this can be looked at, put it in the box. Put it in the job description, for example. Put it in uh, when you're looking at 9089s, the PERM form, the H14 catch-all section of that form. So what what Jim's saying, I just want to echo it even even more strongly, that though the form seems to be asking for specific bits of information, and of course you should provide that information, don't necessarily feel constrained by it if it's going to help you advocate your position. Right, exactly. And if you end up going with the constrained view, it may hurt you later through recruitment. Good point. Such as a validation engineer, you're hiring for a validation engineer. You want to make sure that occupation code matches. It'll help you uh, through that process. Okay. So, but what if there's a combination of occupations um, in the real world? How how would that work? Well, it's okay to have a combination of occupations, but you should be aware of what's going to occur. Um, Generally speaking, the Department of Labor, when they see a job description, they see uh, what ordinarily uh, through their practice or looking at the ONET as your guide would be two separate occupation codes. They're going to allow it to go through, but they're going to note that it's a combination and they're going to give you the wage range for whichever occupation has the higher wage range. Um, This, just for your information, also is going to affect how you fill out the 9089 later down the road after recruitment because you're going to have to indicate that it is a combination of occupations. Um, You know, and that's okay. You just have to be able to to defend it if there's an audit um, explaining how uh, you normally employ individuals with that combination 
or uh, that there's a business necessity in this case. A lot of times I find in my practice this comes up with, say, nonprofits where they only have a limited number of employees, yet those employees are doing multiple jobs. Uh, that's often where I see it come up here. Um, you know, the discussion you're having about combination occupations uh, also uh, brings to my mind those occupations which fall under what we in the trade call catch-all provisions. You know, pro- you know, positions where they end in a point nine nine. I don't want to get too technical right, here, mm-hmm. but they're just very, very broad categories. Now, mm-hmm. to begin with, the ONET, which is the successor of the Dictionary of Occupational Titles, which was originally uh, maintained by the Department of Labor, is very, very broad. It so took, who's maintaining the ONET now? Uh, the Department of Labor. Okay. Department of Labor. I don't know exactly know which constituent of it, but it mm-hmm. is the you know broadly the Department of Labor. And is it the Employment Training Administration, the Foreign Workforce, the I'm, Office of Foreign Labor Certification? I'm I'm not sure if it's uh, ETA okay. or if it's BLS or some other okay. constituent, but it is the Department of Labor broadly. Okay. Um, and you know, oftentimes, oftentimes the this catch-all occupation, this catch-all category, when you look at it in the ONET, it is actually further subdivided into specific job titles. Mm. And those specific job titles are supposed to represent those emerging or new occupations that are coming around. And you know, often I think ten years ago, the Department of Labor was scratching their head and really struggling as newer and newer, like even ten, maybe fifteen, twenty years ago. But now things seem to be slightly more settled with the technology and computer systems and programmers and developers and all of those combinations which are not as brand spanking new like they were twenty years ago. And consequently, the Department of Labor in multiple venue and fora have said, yeah, we should be using these all other occupations for those positions that match up. But remember what I said, the ONET is broad. And oftentimes, having an exact match in the real world to the um, all other occupations is not always going to be there. So, you know, uh, my my thought is, and, and what I've done in practice many times with these all other occupations, is make sure that I state, I, I cite the Balka case that was, uh, that kind of said that there should do it matter of right, water. Project right. managers right. in that yeah. case, right? Yeah, exactly. And and cite to it and say, hey, you can assign this. And you know, sometimes it's successful and other times it's not. Like Jim said, there is a discretionary element to the Department of Labor's adjudicator picking the uh, job uh, for giving giving the PWD the prevailing wage determination. Correct. And so that actually will then, because the way the prevailing wage determination is coded, that will determine how the labor certification is, is filed. That becomes your wage that you have to offer the employee and just creates, as Korzad said, the blueprint or the foundational cornerstone of the entire labor certification process. That's pretty scary on some levels because... I think employers, sometimes the employee will come to a lawyer and say, hey, lawyer, please help me draft my job. What are you doing? Well, I'm a software engineer. Um, But then the law firm and the lawyers just sit and flush out the job duties or ask the employee, tell me the detailed outline of what you're doing, then see where we can match it to the ONET job duties and job code and try to find the, the potential parallel. And as Korzad said, we can request them that this appears to be the job code and this should be the salary for this position. But they can come back and say, oh, no, 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 no. We don't agree or we agree because it's a combination. Okay, so let's move on from combination to roving employees. It's very common, especially consulting companies and many, many jobs nowadays. And in this day and age, where you have a client location, the employer is in a different location, 
You have telecommuting as an option. How does all of that play in with the prevailing wage? The, well, to, sp- to speak very, very plainly uh, and answer your question very directly, absolutely, roving, telecommuting, these are all lawful work scenarios that can be expressed appropriately within the form. It really depends on what the roving or what the moving type of relationship or a situation is or what the uh, what the travel uh, or um, other work sites uh, will present as. For example, uh, if it's a traditional roving employee that is going to be probably going from unanticipated client site to unanticipated client site, uh, we can use the same uh, principles that are explicated in the Barber Farmer memo on roving employees and have the locus of employment be the headquarters and make sure that at each successive part of the form, it's properly indicated that travel relocation is part and parcel of this. Uh, But there are other, that is not the only kind of traveling scenario that's out there. Uh, There are those employees who are employed by a company with, let's say, a headquarters in Los Angeles, but they have another branch office in Boston, and their travel is only in the New England area. So then... Go past. You what? (laughs) So then we might have a uh, situation where we can, we don't have to necessarily use the headquarters rule if the Boston office is a established, uh, you know, constant presence within the And uh, it's expected community. that the future green card will be based only in the New England or in the Boston area. Correct. And you can have the travel just be for the Boston area and indicate it that way. Um, with respect and that's, to again, assuming from the employer perspective that the Boston salary will be less than the Los Angeles correct. salary. Correct. Because at some point, if there's a small chance that this employee could later on be sent anywhere in the U.S., you are way worse off limiting yourself because then the labor certification may not be valid in the future. Um, and that could create its own problem. And that's why we strategize. And that's why right, this is exactly. a foundational step. Mm-hmm. Um, a virtual office, I just want to throw in there, is also a unique situation that's happening more and more where an employer doesn't actually have a headquarters. Um, in the perm process for other reasons in other teleconferences we'll talk about. Um, that can be problematic, but in that case, you may actually be recruiting and getting wage data from the location of where the employee's home is, mm-hmm. where their home office is, where they're working from. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so next we go to the next topic, which is the wage level. As we know, the Department of Labor's last wage guidance has been from back in 2009, So that's like already seven years old for how Department of Labor adjudicators are supposed to determine the wage level for the prevailing wage determination or PWD. So what are the primary factors that an employer has to consider or the Department of Labor looks at in determining this, particularly using the 2009 wage guidance and how does it impact obtaining that data? Jim? Well, the first thing the Department of Labor is looking at is they're wondering, based upon the job category, occupation code that we talked about earlier, where it, what is normal for this occupation? Now, generally speaking in practice, what employers use, what we see day to day as what they think is normal for the, the occupation or normal for their job is not reality. Um, and so uh, the, one of the first things they're going to look at is the education and the experience requirements. Now, just uh, as a side note, during the ALA conference just uh, last week, we did get information that 
Um, they are the Department of Labor is planning to revise what is normal for the occupation. So, in looking at the job zones and the S- SVPs, um, so that's helpful. But the first thing you're go- they're going to be looking at is education and experience requirements and what is normal for the occupation. If it's considered outside normal from what their point of view is, then it's going to increase the wage. And generally speaking, the wages from level one to a level four. A level one wage, you're talking about something that is entry level. Um, uh, minimum. So for job zone four, which says experience requirements are from two to four years, if it's on the low end, two or less, it's not going to increase the wage level. You're going to go to wage level one. But when it starts moving beyond that, you're going to go up to two, three, or four. I think it's also just important just to throw in at this juncture, which is, you know, it's a little bit outside of what we're talking about here. But I know oftentimes our clients especially those of our clients who are of Indian uh, citizenship or nationality, are very, very interested in classifying themselves in the EB2 category. Mm -hmm. It's very important for everyone to realize that those positions, EB2, whether they be master's in zero or bachelor's in five, they're always going to be above a level one. They're either going to be a level always two. Always above a level one. The salary is going to be higher. And a lot of time, the employee will convince the employer that I need EB2. Otherwise, my green card is going to take 20 or 30 years. So I only wanted to take eight or 10 years. So because I was born in India or maybe China, but mostly India. And so the employer says, oh, okay, please go ahead. Okay, we'll help you. And then they were like, oh, my God, the salary is so much higher. We didn't agree to bump your salary up by 30 or 40 or 50%. Remember that, too. And so when we, whenever we talk about information that we get at, like, American Immigration Lawyers Association conferences or meetings, we'll share that information with you. Um, but, you know, we do have regular meetings on a regular basis, monthly meetings, annual conference meetings. And since this conference is... Uh, this session is really being played in early July because it's the first Wednesday uh, of each month that we have our teleconferences. The annual meetings of the different conferences will usually share information from the most recent conferences and information that we uh, will, will share, obviously, the latest information to keep you all up to date with the cutting edge information that we have to share with you all. Right. And, and just uh, the, f- the follow up on what we were talking about, there are other issues um, that may raise the wage level. The Department of Labor is going to look at and beyond the education experience, they're going to be looking at any special skills or certifications required, travel requirements. If it's uh, you have supervisory duties, um, if it's a managerial position, you're managing s- your peers as opposed to subordinates um, and unusual job duties. An old example is um, requiring COBOL, which is an old that's no longer utilized, that would increase the wage level. Yeah. And, you know, just once again, tying it back to our previous discussion for roving employees, uh, roving employees are always going to have a one-point bump in the wage level. It's, you know, unless the travel is de minimis, you're you're pretty much looking at a at a one-level wage bump. Right. Just because of the travel. And it right. looks like Department of Labor isn't sure. Sometimes they kind of go with, like, travel is... Uh, reason to bump up the wage because it's like a responsibility or it's a pain. On the other side, when it's telecommuting, they don't know whether it's a benefit or a disadvantage or an Mm -hmm. advantage. And there's this whole debate like, hey, if you're offering this to the foreign national, how come you're not offering this to your U.S. workers? Because telecommuting is such a like a feather in your cap, like this huge benefit that employees have the benefit to be able to work Mm -hmm. from home. And so if you do have some of your employees who are allowed to telecommute, remember that that's a very important aspect that I think Department of Labor is still scratching their head and trying to 
figure out and struggle with some of these complex issues because there are some, there's a little bit of case law where, as uh, Korzad mentioned, the Barbara Farmer memo, which is back from 1994, 22 years ago. But then there's a lot of other stuff from case law and denials and decisions that they've given where they're not able to make up their mind. Is this a benefit or is this a responsibility and an obligation uh, and a problem which is going to have to up the prevailing wage and move it a notch up and higher? And then we have the issue of alternate wage surveys where... Because the Department of Labor's prevailing wage comes back so outrageously high that you as an employer may say, whoa, 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 this is not going to work. I'm either going to have to no longer continue the green card for this employee or tell the employee your six years are coming to an end, pack up and go back home or what have you. The employer has to then consider, do I want to consider an alternate wage survey, in which case they would actually need to submit a copy of the survey and the methodology that was used in order to obtain the AWS or the alternate wage survey to the U.S. Department of Labor with the request for the prevailing wage. The DOL then decides whether they're going to accept the information that's provided by the employer or reject it or come back to their old original prevailing wage determination or how they're going to deal with this whole issue. Uh, Generally, we found that the DOL is reluctant to accept most alternate wage surveys so if you as an employer are planning to submit uh, an alternate wage, make sure that it abides by all of the very specific detailed requirements of the Department of Labor. And so let's jump and ask Korzad. Korzad, so what are the detailed requirements or factors that the DOL would consider in determining whether to accept an alternate wage? The two that I'm going to just touch on briefly are, are, are what I call the, lovingly call the 24s. Okay. All right. The data that the survey is based on must have been collected within the 24-month period uh, preceding publication of the survey. Very, very important because obviously... Even though their wage guidance is back from 2009, which is seven years old. Well, that guidance is is very old, definitely. And yes, they they should be a little bit more uh, updated. Uh, That guidance refers to calculating wage levels. Um, and this this uh, survey, these surveys here are are based on uh, industry uh, surveys on uh, compensation and wages to determine in that specific period what is the general trend of the wages been and what they list mm-hmm. as kind of the uh, median or mean, which which Jim will talk about uh, talk about in the, in, a, in a few minutes. But that that data must be fresh, and what they consider fresh is 24 months from publication. And the other 24 24 to keep in mind when it comes to alternate wage surveys is that the actual publication date for the survey has to have been within the last 24 months. But if there's a more current version of the survey, then that's the one you got to use. So it has to be less than two years old. But if there's one that's newer, uh, even if there's one that's less than two years old, you got to use the one that's newer because this the the, the um, wage data changes all the time. I mean, even within Department of Labor, Department of Labor changes their wage data every year on July 1, like, uh, like clockwork. Okay. Okay. That's right. Another area they, that uh, the, the alternative wage survey has to look at is it needs to reflect the geographic area of the position. Generally speaking, they're looking at what's normal commuting distance or metropolitan statistical area, and it could be expanded. But we've found in practice when you start expanding, the Department of Labor becomes more and more reluctant to utilize them. Um, the you know uh, another key aspect and something that we see a lot of problems with. Uh, wage surveys that are trying to be used is the job description and requirements 
on the survey itself need to be consistent with what's listed on your prevailing wage determination. Um, it needs to uh, demonstrate that the data represents the workers that are similarly employed as what you're listing for your labor. Um, you want to look at to see if the survey has the same education and training requirements. Um, even though it may is not specifically required, it's helpful in practice for what we're seeing with the Department of Labor. You know, in a way, you know, we, when we were first talking about the foundational nature of the of the um, of the ETA ninety one forty one, this prevailing wage process, and also not being too constrained by the requirements that the form the four corners of the form are, because you can advocate within it. If you're using alternate wage service, Jim, wouldn't you say that in a way you don't you're still advocating, but not as broadly. You're, you're constrained now mostly by the alternative waste sur survey because you want the contents of the 9141 to comport with that wage survey so that the, so that the uh, Department of Labor is more inclined to accept that wage survey to determine the wage. That's right? true. Absolutely. And the other point that we had kind of, I don't know if you sort of talked about it, but a little bit was the whole issue about cross-industry representation where we said, you know, should it have been collected across different industries? Does the survey have to have an other category? Probably yes. It's wiser if it's across industries. But then what if it's an occupation that is purely in one industry, sort of like a hospitalist or a medical doctor? Yeah, I mean, and the Department of Labor has in in discussions with the private bar said that, yes, obviously for those positions that are only in one industry, for example, hospitalists. Hospitals are only going to be in the medical industry. There's not going to be a software consulting company that needs a, ho a hospitalist, typically. Um, they will accept industry uh, 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 surveys. And the uh, Medical Group Management Association survey is a good example of a healthcare doctor-specific survey that's used and accepted by the U.S. Department of Labor routinely. But generally speaking, because they're trying to get a wide cross section to of of data to determine um, what uh, what the um, w what the prevailing wage would be, what the appropriate wage uh, should be that's assigned, uh, you know, the Department of Labor is more inclined to require cross industry mm -hmm. uh, data. Well, what if, uh, Corzine, Let me ask you: What if I have uh, a nonprofit organization um, and? They're saying that their wages just aren't a reality. Can we just look at the nonprofits? Generally, no. Um, I would actually say specifically no. Uh, though it's tempting to say that I, um, the job I offer should be compared to jobs that employers like me offer, the Department of Labor determines these not based on type of employer, though, of course, there is the Acquia survey for nonprofits, but that's a different discussion. Uh, they, they base it on the job. Right. And what the job title is, and what the ju job duties are, and what that's the true. Because a lot of nonprofits will say my salary cannot be the same as a for-profit or a large company, um, but Department of Labor says that's too bad. You're going to be stuck with whatever the wage is. Also, the size of the sample is an issue, where we need to have at least thirty responses. Jim, do you want to go over some of that? The yeah, sure. The it, it, you know, just touch it real briefly. You know, you need at least the, at least thirty responses. No oversimplification is basically three employers and at least thirty uh, workers on that survey for it to be um, accepted minimally. But if it's three workers, three employers, how do you get thirty responses for prevailing wage? Uh, th three employers and at least thirty workers. I'm sorry, I made so I okay. Misspeak. So three. Then it comes to around ninety people, but that's assuming everybody responds. Correct. So you need only 
30, but you need 30 of those responses. You need at least 30 responses, correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, in the Department of Labor, generally speaking, they want the weighted average. So three employers, meaning 30 employers per employer or 30 total? 10, uh, 10, 30 total. So, so at least okay, 10, 10 employees for each per, employer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and generally speaking, the Department of Labor wants to see the, uh, the weighted average, although they may accept a, uh, the medium wage. Um, the survey also must provide their methodology, and this is key. A lot of surveys don't include that. So if uh, you're out there doing that and you're not... Uh, Listing the service of the Murthy Law Firm, make sure that methodology is included in that alternative wage survey. Okay. And now, after the prevailing wage determination is issued, what is the next step? Now that we've accomplished it, we've got it, we've requested it, we have got it from Department of Labor, what's next? What, if we are having a problem with it, what do we do? Well, if, if the wage that's determined after all of this work is, is just too high and we don't agree with it, the regulations do permit a, a, a um, scheme of challenging that. Um, for clear errors, a misapplication of, uh, of a job level, of a, of a, of a wage level, or a incorrect, um, completely incorrect uh, job uh, Classification, something that's just clearly, clearly wrong. Uh, it can be challenged by sending an email to the National Processing Center at flc.pwd.dol.gov explaining what the issue is. And hopefully they work relatively quick, and they do work relatively quick on clear government error to, um, to correct that. But oftentimes when we have a wage determination that we want to challenge, it may not fall into that clear government error, uh, government error category. Perhaps we, perhaps it's something novel or something that needs to be elucidated or clarified. Uh, and the, the, uh, the way to challenge that is to actually go into the system and request redetermination. When I say system, like I said when we first started this discussion, the ETA 9141 is submitted electronically. So you can go back into that portal, for lack of a better term, so go to your wage that you want to have redetermined, press the redetermination box, and then make your argument there. Um, the employer, when they request redetermination, are permitted to provide additional documentation and uh, materials and support, and they have a box where they can make their argument, which has about a thousand characters. However, like I said, you are permitted to upload, so if you have a more fleshed out or comprehensive argument that you want to make, uh, you may want to upload your argument as part of that kind of package uh, with, the, um, with the system. Now, if that doesn't work out, uh, you may uh, uh, challenge the, the, the determination to the center director, uh, the actual director of the National Processes Center here in Washington, D.C. There's no time frame for how long it can take the um, center director. But once again, you can elucidate your, uh, your arguments, provide your materials and support, and see if they will reverse. If they do not, then the ultimate arbiter of this is the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals, or BALCA. And once again, that's a more formalized process of appeal where you have to provide a brief and uh, you know, docketing statement. Uh, and that also can, uh, can result in perhaps a reversal or, or them upholding their determination. Throughout this entire thing, though, I have to, you know, I have to say that the biggest enemy, while we're if if we're if we fall into this cycle of redetermination, is time. Uh, like I said, one one step doesn't even have a relevant time frame. The National Processing Center has had processing time creep when it comes to just 
determining garden variety wage uh, wage determination requests. When it comes to redeterminations, their time frame is ballooned beyond, I believe, 90 to 120 days. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, about the same time as getting a prevailing wage right now and, to begin with. And Balka, though they're severely backlogged, uh, with the perms, over four thousand cases. I correct, believe, correct. For for labor for prevailing wage determinations, I don't believe the back to, backlog is that big. But I would still think, especially with reorganizations that are happening in the uh, Employment and Training Administration's Foreign Labor Cert Office, that processing time creep, uh, creep rather is going to be happening there too. So. Before we kind of fall into these cycles, especially since people run out of H-1B time, uh, you know, it's, it's, a good, it's a good idea to understand that there may be other options we want to take besides redetermination. Right. And just as an addition, uh, additional to strategy, keep in mind, if you end up having to go to Balka, hopefully you won't. But if you do go that far, they're only going to review it as what's already on the record. You can't uh, give new evidence. You can't give new arguments. So be thinking about this strategy when you do your redetermination request to begin with. Submit everything you think you may need later down the road if it just doesn't go your That's way. That's a really, really good tip. And as you can see from this very lively and fascinating interactive discussion by my learned colleagues, Korzad and Jim, and on just the first stage of the labor certification process with obtaining and filing and obtaining the prevailing wage determination, how complicated and complex and convoluted the entire green card process is, dealing with the U.S. Department of Labor with respect and obtaining the labor certification approval, the first stage being the prevailing wage determination. Uh, then you have, of course, the I-140 stage and then the 40 with USCIS and then the 485 stage with the USCIS where the employer, uh, the employee in the last stage shows, the second stage, of course, as you know, the employer shows their financial ability to meet the wage and the employee's qualifications. Third stage is 485, where the employee shows that they don't have a criminal record that makes the person inadmissible or there's no health-related grounds of inadmissibility, et cetera. So you have this huge three-step process. And in the first step, we are talking about the first step in the first step to tell you how outrageously complicated it is, which is why you need a really strong partner team to work with you, hold your hand, and guide you through the process. Obviously, I'd like to share my thoughts, which is I think we have the wisest, smartest, most uh, brilliant, uh, detailed, oriented, and thorough attorneys and legal team that cares about you and your success as an employer, as for your employees to keep them here for the long term. Uh, so on behalf of Korzad Mehta, Jim McLaughlin, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us for today's teleconference on prevailing wage determination issues. We will continue sharing with you the latest cutting-edge information to help you appreciate and understand the importance of working with a very strong law firm and legal team. I know we are always conscientious of the time that we want to be between 30 and 45 minutes, and we are right in the center, close to 40 minutes. So with that, have a fabulous rest of the summer, and we look forward to continuing to take great care of you at the Murthy Law Firm. Have a great day. Bye-bye.